Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 37. Last week, I covered the remaining cities of refuge, in that case, Kedesh and Ramoth. I then started on the Levitical cities mentioned in Joshua, touching Alibna and Jata. There was also a short diversion into another lost book of the Old Testament, the Book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing with the remaining Levitical cities, in this case, spending the entire episode on the city of Gibeon. And with that, let's get started. Honestly, I'm surprised I haven't yet covered Gibeon, but I went back and checked, and while I've mentioned it, I haven't done the deep dive. Thinking back towards the beginning of the book of Joshua, and considering this is the 37th episode in this chapter, that means we have to go back to November of 2020. Not that we particularly want to recall that year, but thinking back to then, Gibeon was mentioned several times. After the Israelites, who at the time were being led by Joshua, after they defeated and destroyed the cities of Jericho and Ai, the Hivite people of Gibeon sent ambassadors to trick Joshua and the Israelites into making a treaty with them. According to the text, and even further back, the Israelites were commanded to annihilate all the inhabitants of Canaan, which included the Gibeonites. But it seems the Gibeonites weren't going to just wait for the impending attack. So, they took the initiative and sent emissaries to meet the Israelite leadership, claiming they had traveled far, from a great and powerful land. Then, the Israelites made a mistake. They entered into an agreement, a peace treaty, a covenant, with the Gibeonites, and didn't bother to consult God. Not long after that, they realized that they had been tricked. Before long, the Israelites would realize the far-off land the Gibeonites had traveled from wasn't far off at all. But the Israelites honored their covenant, at least the letter of the agreement. They didn't destroy the Gibeonites, but instead enslaved them. As the text tells us, the Gibeonites were made woodcutters and water carriers. And according to Joshua 9, They remained in these occupations at least through when that book was written. After this, and likely because from an outside perspective, it looked like the Gibeonites had allied with the Israelites, and their neighbors took notice. And this was a precursor to the budding alliance between the coalition of five Amorite kings who formed up to battle the Israelites. The Gibeonites made an appeal to Joshua and the Israelites who came out and conquered the Amorites, aided by Joshua's ability to make both the sun and moon stand still. Also, deadly hailstones, an adequate plague on most days, but that was a day like few before or since. As for the sun and moon standing still on that day, astronomers have calculated that an annular eclipse occurred there on October 30th, 1207 B.C., An annular eclipse is what you envision when you think of an eclipse of the sun, with the moon nearly perfectly blocking out the bright light of that star. But do note that it doesn't make the day any longer. 
there are a few things that can be deduced from these passages. Gibeon was a Canaanite city in the north of what would become Israel, likely to the west of the Jordan River. Joshua records that they were Hivites, while 2 Samuel says they were Amorites. There are plenty of ways to square that circle, including that the city could have been occupied by the Amorites after the original Gibeonites were enslaved. Except Samuel attempted to clarify by stating that the Israelites had sworn to spare them, and in this case, they were the Amorites. In fact, Samuel provided even more detail, which I'll get to in just a second. There is a third possibility about who these Gibeonites were, and that's that they were both Hittite and Amorite. It's possible that one was a subset of the other. Backing up to the passage in 2 Samuel, David would become king of the united monarchy of Israel. Much later, and after the death of his rebellious son Absalom and his restoration to the united throne, Israel was hit with a three-year drought. This led David to inquire of God as to the reason for the drought, and no doubt the deaths that it led to. The dry spell was said to be the divine judgment against King Saul's decision to completely exterminate the Gibeonites. And this went against the centuries-old covenant that Joshua and the Israelites had made. Specifically, God said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So David called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. This next bit is in parentheses in the text. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David asked the Gibeonites what he could do to make things right. They requested that seven of Saul's sons be handed over to them so they could execute them at Gibeon. And David did as they requested, turning them over. Those were different, and rough times indeed. But he didn't hand over seven of Saul's immediate sons. Instead, there were two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons. He did, though, spare Jonathan's son. Remember that Jonathan was not only Saul's son, but at one time, David's good friend. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan and David made an oath to each other, essentially for each to protect the other. And now that Jonathan was dead and only his son remained, David would not allow the Gibeonites to have him, standing by his oath, despite everything that had happened since. While it's not recorded in the text, Jewish tradition holds that there is much more to this story, and in this case, this is the linking of the request of the Gibeonites to the earlier, meaning while Saul was king, when he allowed the slaughter of the Gibeonite priest at Nob. This event itself is in the text in 1 Samuel 22. What's missing is the direct connection between the massacre and the request of the Gibeonites made of David. I'll cover the city of Nob in that incident when I get to the books of Samuel. There is some speculation that this wasn't the only time that Saul had targeted the Gibeonites, but the other times, if they did happen, 
are nowhere to be found in the text. A generation or so later, David's son Solomon would take the throne and nearly immediately meet with all of Israel's leaders at Gibeon. It was here that 1,000 burnt offerings were made. Some think that this was done at Gibeon because the ark could have been located there. Immediately after this, God would appear to Solomon in a dream and grant him his legendary wisdom. Backing up a bit, when the territory was allocated to the various tribes, Gibeon would be within the boundaries of Benjamin. Though, and this is the reason it's getting covered now, it was given to the priestly Levites, so it was a Levitical city. This also helps to explain why the tabernacle may have been moved from Shiloh to a high place in Gibeon following the capture of the ark by the Philistines. Gibeon is found in much of the Old Testament, and in many cases, in very confusing mentions. First Chronicles records that Jewil was the father of Gibeon, and more notable, he was an ancestor of King Saul. This same Jewel was said to have been the descendant of Jacob's son, Benjamin. My interpretation of this is that this Jewel was the first Israelite to control Gibeon. After Saul's death, fighting between the soldiers of Joab and those of Abner took place beside the pool of Gibeon. It was also here that King David conquered the Philistines, and after the Babylonian exile, Gibeon would come under the control of Judea. After this return, and as found in Nehemiah 3, the men of Gibeon repaired a piece of the wall of Jerusalem near the old gate on the west side of the city. And that's essentially it in the biblical text. In the outside record, there's more to be found than most of the cities I've recently covered. The oldest known mention of Gibeon outside of the Old Testament is in a list of cities on the wall of the Moon Temple at Karnak, an inscription that celebrates the invasion of Israel by Egyptian pharaoh Shoshek I in the 10th century BC. This would place it well after likely a couple centuries after, the Israelites returned from their wanderings and settled down. The first century Jewish-Roman writer Josephus would record that Gibeon was about five miles, eight kilometers outside of Jerusalem. While this does seem closer than you would initially suspect, it also helps to explain why Solomon would have made his sacrifices there and lends even more credibility to the ark having been kept there before Solomon would build his temple in Jerusalem. 10th century Jewish Moroccan lexicographer David ben Abraham Alfasi identified the village of Al-Jib as the more ancient city of Gibeon. Later lexicographers would support the theory, and because of this, the village of Al-Jib is still commonly believed to be located at the same place. In the 19th century, Edward Robinson would make the same identification. Hebrew inscriptions unearthed in 1956 seem to prove these much earlier writers to have been correct. While it's not exactly six miles from Jerusalem, it's extremely close to that distance, adding support to the theory. As most places in the region with any sort of historical interest, Numerous excavations have occurred at the site, yielding the usual artifacts, which allows me to back up a bit in the timeline. 
the artifacts show that Gibeon was founded at least as early as the early Bronze Age, as shown by 14 pottery jars uncovered from beneath the remains of a more recent defensive wall. And by more recent, I mean it dates to the Iron Age. There were other artifacts dating to the early Bronze Age found on top of the tell. But, unfortunately, this area was greatly impacted by British artillery raining down on the hilltop during World War I. As for this Iron Age wall, it was likely of a defensive sort, at least according to archaeologists. But when you think about it, nearly all city walls are defensive. Walls would have a hard time being offensive, since they're immobile. And I guess the only other possibility is if they're neither, maybe just structural or decorative. A little bit more on that wall in a minute. Near the city, and carved into the rock on the east side of the hill, are tombs, and in the tombs were found more early Bronze Age jars. These tombs tend to have been a single burial per tomb. The construction of these pottery pieces is interesting. They appear to have been initially formed by hand, but the finishing touches were put on them by slow pottery wheels, an advance in technology. This city appears to have been ravaged by fire at some point, but the actual dating of this destruction is yet to be determined. More tombs have been uncovered from the Middle Bronze Age, though these tend to be of a different construction and built within shafts cut into the rocks. So far, 26 such burial places have been uncovered, but within these, there's something equally compelling, and that's that the pottery found in these later tombs is actually cruder than that found in the earlier ones. Of course, this did not go unnoticed by researchers, which led to the formation of theories attempting to thread that needle. In this case, the theory is that these tombs were not filled by the long-term, established residents of Gibeon, but perhaps by nomads who are temporarily living in the region. These pottery pieces are more similar to ones found from the same era uncovered at Jericho, Lachish, and Megiddo. Dating to shortly after this period, but still in the Bronze Age, are the remains of a much more significant city along with exceptionally crafted pottery. Also from the era are close to 30 tombs, many of which contain multiple burials, which is notably different from the early Bronze Age tombs, which gets me to the late Bronze Age, and yields something mildly interesting. No traces of any sort of occupation of the city dating to the period has been uncovered, at least not yet. However, a few tombs from the period have been found, but they number less than those from prior eras. In these were pottery that seems to have Aegean influences. What's unknown is if they were made by authentic Cypriot potters, or if the pieces were made by locals who were merely imitating foreign pieces. But regardless of which theory you go with, the pottery does show contact between the two cultures. The tombs also yield something else. They appeared to have been older, perhaps cut into the stone hundreds of years before, maybe even further back, and they were merely being reused. As for the lack of any sort of city from the period, 
It may have been destroyed or torn down and rebuilt over, or it may simply be awaiting a future archaeologist to dig in the correct spot. What makes this more curious is that it's from about the same date as when the Israelites showed back up in the region after their four decades of wandering. Which finally gets me to the Iron Age, likely when the city was occupied by the Israelites after the Gibeonites struck their peace agreement with them and were forced into servitude. It's commonly thought that this was the peak of the city's prosperity. This prosperity is evidenced by a massive defensive wall that was constructed around the top of the slopes of the Tell. But that wasn't all, and certainly doesn't set Gibeon apart from other regional cities. What does set it apart was located just inside the wall. There, the Gibeonites cut a huge water pool into the rock, a pool so unique it would be mentioned in the Old Testament, most notably in 2 Samuel. In this case, in a story I covered a couple of months back, it was a site of the fight between Abner and Joab. As for the specifics of the pool, mostly because it was cut into rock, in this case, relatively soft limestone. And since rock tends to stand the test of time, better than most substances, we do know quite a bit about it. First off, it appears to have been built in three different phases. The first, meaning the oldest part of the pool, was about 40 feet, 12 meters in diameter, and nearly as deep. But it likely wasn't completely filled with water. This is evidenced by a spiral staircase cut into the walls of the circular pool, which raises the question of how did the water get into the pool, which without water is merely a somewhat impressive hole in the ground. This is where the second construction phase comes in. As part of this project, a tunnel was added that continues downward to a water chamber about 80 feet, 24 meters below the level of the city, meaning this tunnel led from the pool to the water table, where water could then be transported, probably by human hands and feet, to the pool above. Now, think back to when the Gibeonites were first introduced in Joshua and after their peace treaty with the Israelites. When the Israelites realized they had been tricked, they enslaved the Gibeonites and gave them very specific jobs, woodcutters and water carriers. I haven't yet found something that gives insight into the woodcutting part, except to note that being a carpenter was pretty routine work. Just ask Joseph. But a water carrier is a very specific task, it makes perfect sense when you consider how water was pulled at Gibeon. If only they had been stonemasons, but that may have been too good to be true. The pool would have a third construction phase, and as part of this, which was still during the Iron Age, another 93 steps were cut into the rock, these leading to a more reliable water source, and still requiring manual labor to get the water to the pool. These steps were outside of the stone hole and led to a water source outside of the city, and therefore the unprotected side of the city's walls. As proof of the staying power of things built into stone, these steps, the ones built in the third phase, are still in use today. Overall, and when all three phases are taken into consideration, 
the pool is considered a remarkable feat of engineering for the ancient world. There's something else worth mentioning. There are a few who point out that there is no evidence directly connecting this pool with the one mentioned in the Old Testament. But come on, how clear does it have to be? Or to phase differently, there will always be detractors. Moving along. Gibeon was not only known for its pool, but also for the wine produced in the area surrounding it. When I hear of things like this, I wonder what set it apart from the other regional cities. People? Geography? Something else entirely? In the case of Gibeon, it starts with geography. The areas surrounding the Tell tended to be flat and fertile, and had an above-average number of springs. This last one, the abundance of water in an otherwise parched area, is likely the least surprising, given the pool that was located there, along with the people being known for millennia as water carriers. All of this made growing grapes easier than in the surrounding areas. But it takes more than just grapes. There needs to be vessels to store the grape juice in, and be able to store it long enough that it can ferment. Gibeon had an abundance of potters, and apparently was on the cutting edge of pottery technology. In our modern world, it's difficult to think that pottery requires technology, but at one time it did. Though grapes and fermenting vessels aren't usually enough either. Growing grapes is labor-intensive, and the harvest even more so. Add in the crushing, the pottery, and then enough capital to be tied up and waiting on the fermenting, and all of a sudden the production of wine isn't as easy as it would seem from a 50,000-foot view. What all of this means is that for significant wine production to occur, there needs to be a well-developed economy along with a certain level of prosperity. Wine, truer then than today, was a luxury good, partly why it was considered a miracle to turn water into wine. Overall, what all of this led to, and what archaeological evidence seems to indicate, is a thriving wine industry. Uncovered in the city, along with the area surrounding it, are large pottery pieces, in many cases vessels large enough to hold nearly 12 U.S. gallons, which is about 54 liters. The only way I can envision this is to imagine two five-gallon buckets, with a little more. Evidence of significant wine production isn't only found in large jars stained by the drink. There were also numerous wine cellars uncovered. Actually, let me get a little more specific. So far, nearly 70 cellars have been uncovered. These tend to be about 7 feet, 2 meters deep, and cut into the hard rock making them, when taken all together, capable of storing a total of about 25,000 U.S. gallons, 95,000 liters, bigger than most backyard swimming pools. Most of these cellars date to around the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., smack dab in the Iron Age. Yet another reason why this period is considered to be when Gibeon reached its peak. It was during this period, according to the biblical text, that the Israelites controlled the city, and inscribed on the handles of many of the wine jars is Hebrew text, corroborating the narrative. 
Then something strange. Beginning around the 6th century BC and continuing through the 1st century AD, there's little uncovered evidence of any sort of occupation. And this elicits another of my usual caveats. Just because no evidence has yet to be found doesn't mean that no one was there. There are many possible explanations. I know I've mentioned it before, so I'll keep it short. But the remnants could have been destroyed by fire, an attacking force, or a natural disaster, like an earthquake, then built over. Or numerous other things could have easily happened. There is something nearby, which may show people were living in Gibeon at the time. Located on the southern slope of a ridge, towards the western side of the city, and only a stone's throw away, modern archaeologists, redundant, I know. Anyway, they have uncovered a dwelling dating to sometime between the Second Temple period and the Greek era. What this means in terms of years is it dates to between about 500 BC and 63 BC, when the area was annexed by Rome. Inside this uncovered building was a plastered ritual bath with three descending staircases. Also nearby from the same period was what may have been an industrial zone with lime kilns. Fast forward to the Roman era, and in this case, the artifacts begin to show up around the 2nd century AD. And all of a sudden, the city shows evidence of people living there, and not just a trickle of people back. Instead, considerable construction, including more pools and the accompanying water channels. So, less likely was the manual transportation of water, with gravity being used to move the fluid. During this period, and because of its proximity, Gibeon was likely dependent on Jerusalem for protection, and probably didn't have a wall. And that's it for Gibeon, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue with the other Levitical cities mentioned in Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.